All right, welcome back to another episode of Credentials Buffering. Today we have a special guest tonight joining myself and Matt. It is Luke Negron running for Congress in Pennsylvania's 18th district. So without further ado, Luke, why don't I hand it over to you and you introduce yourself. All right, yeah. Hello, gentlemen. I mean, we were able to connect, I I think, both of us initially over Twitter. Um, And I'm really excited to be here as we discussed before we went live I'm always interested in talking to people who are young leaders, trying to to influence the world around them, because that's where I myself am, am coming from. And I think that that's really valuable today, arguably more than ever in our nation's history. So that's kind of a, a really brief overview synopsis of, of why I'm doing what I'm doing, is because I think that young professional leadership is underrepresented um, on the left and on the right. I see a trend towards desiring that from the populace. And I think that this is something that I can, these are these are shoes I can fill. This is a role that, uh, that I can fit into. And I think that whenever we find something that is our ability to affect in social life or in uh, ethical guidelines, I think that it's also our responsibility then to fill that role. If that's the gift that you've been given, we each have something different. And, uh, and once you find it, I'm all about pursuing it with all that you have. And I think 2020 is an open door to, to doing just that for young people and also for Washington outsiders. And the last thing I'll say in this intro here as an overview is the evidence of that is on the right, you have an outsider at the highest level, at Donald Trump. The first political office he ever, he ever uh, took was the leader of the free world. And on the left, you've got people like Ilhan Omar or, or, and, uh, and uh, AOC, who are Washington outsiders, um, AOC, who was a barmaid. Uh, 12 months before she was one of the biggest names in the United States, and now she's influencing the world. So you see this in a very bipartisan way, and then uh, and then you see a big movement for, for young leaders as well. So I think now is the time. Perfect. Thank you so much, Luke. I love the barmaid comment about uh, AOC. All right, let's talk about you. Uh, you're running for Congress in Pennsylvania's 18th district. Let's back up and see how we got here. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you know where you're from, your history, your education, and uh, why you decided to get into politics. Yeah, so in order to, to answer that last part, why I got into politics, we need to take a, a bit of a deep dive into my background. So I'm actually only a second generation American. Uh, all four of my grandparents came here during the World War II era. They're all immigrants. Uh, so, so I have a, a soft spot for immigration and for uh, legal immigrants who want to come and build up our country. But I also have a soft spot for, for patriotism because that's what, that's what immigration used to be, is patriotism. I saw my, my family come here. They all spoke with accents till, till the day uh, now three out of the four are dead. Uh, so till the day they died, they had accents, but they learned the language. They loved America. They wanted to build their families here. They loved what we offered here. Um, so that patriotism really brings me back to what I was born into. Then you fast forward a little bit after I was born uh, at the age of eight. 9-11 happened. Um, and 9-11 for me was something that took me in the span of one day from being a child who only cared about dinosaurs and who I was going to play with tomorrow and whether or not I got ice cream to, you know, the day later, I was aware of this thing called global politics and global warfare and that it mattered who our leaders were. And as an eight-year-old, I'd, I'd never knew or cared about that beyond maybe hearing the, the name Bill Clinton a few times because he was relevant in that era. 
Um, so that's when I really got into politics. And from then on, of course, through high school, we saw we saw, you know, the 2008 stock market crash. We of saw course, the wars yeah. just stretching out um, Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom. Um, I grew up in a military family, so I saw that impact of politics. And then I studied politics professionally uh, in college. I was a poli sci communications and a national securities student at Grove City College interned with a bunch of grassroots organizations, um, with some political organizations, and then uh, joined the Air Force. And again, that kind of led me to, to have a value for how leadership affects people in a real world sense. And through there also worked in the private sector. And then that brings me to where I am now, where I, I look around and I say, I think what we are supposed to have as Americans is more of the every man in leadership and less of the old rich career elitist. And what we see sadly now is less every man and more old rich career elitist. The Bushes, the Clintons, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Mitch McConnell's, all of these are people who have been in power for decades on end. And if we're gonna be real, they don't, they don't relate to or understand you and me, the working class of America. I would totally agree with that and <laughs> completely excellent. But uh, let, let's touch on your military career a little bit. You know, nowadays we see a lot of politicians with the military background as well. You mentioned people like AOC being outsiders. And another one that comes to mind is Dan Crenshaw as well, who, yes. you know, yes. he obviously describes a lot of his inspiration for politics and a lot of the way he conducts himself. Uh, he attributes it to the military. Do you feel the same way about it? Yeah, actually, it's it's funny you mention that because usually when I give that example, it's either you know I sometimes I use Donald Trump, sometimes it's Dan Crenshaw for the <laughs> and Dan Crenshaw fits both both brackets, right? He's a young leader and he's a an outsider, and so yeah, yeah, Dan Crenshaw is actually someone I would I would love to work with. I, I largely agree with him on his policies. Um, I, I think that he is a sacrificial leader and he's also just a very influential individual. He's kind of like the the answer to the young leaders that the left really has. And I think we need more young leaders on the right. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Let's uh, let's talk about your district a little bit. Pennsylvania's congressional 18th district. Tell us, tell us what it's made of. Tell us who's there. What do they do? Yeah. All right. So, so PA 18 is Pittsburgh in the South Hills. And one of the reasons that I love this region is because I've, I really have spent my adult life in Pennsylvania and specifically Western PA since 2012 when I came out here uh, at the age of, of 19 for, for college. Fell in love with the area because it's a town with some deep roots in the working class. It, everyone knows Pittsburgh, the steel city, the coal city, right? But it has those roots and it has that working class environment. And yet it has also managed to evolve and stay relevant. And now the city is very big on uh, education, medicine, and technology. And so Pittsburgh as a region is very unique because it kind of feels like what I tend to gravitate towards, which is more of a small town feel, more of a community and less of a big bustling city. And yet it's also a very successful city. So it compiles and combines these two things that I really love. And, uh, and then as far as the, the voters here, they're very centrist. They, 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 they want the American dream more than most people I've come across. And I, I've been to 42 out of, four, uh, out of 50 states. And it, by that, I mean, they want to live their lives and be left alone. But like, that's, that's the American dream. It's like, like we, don't, we don't want these politicians breathing down our throats. We don't want them telling us what we can and can't do every day of our lives. We wanna live freely, have our stuff protected, 
and have a reasonable expectation for safety. And then you just leave me alone. The rest of the time is like, leave me alone. And, and, yeah. and that's what Pittsburgh wants. And I, I can dig that. It's um, as a major city, I think it's very vulnerable to be flipped for um, for the, the Republican side because this area has been trending red for the last decade to a decade or and a half. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of ground to be made up here by talking to those working class individuals who might be registered as Democrats, but they're just like you and me. They're not radicals. And anyone who's not a radical is is an ally today. I would totally have to agree. And I think that's really the class that won that won the election for President Trump in 2016. It's those people who want the benefits that America has to offer without, you know, destroying it and rebuilding it from the ground up. So I can see how that appeals to a lot of people. And uh, you mentioned that Pennsylvania has been trending red. Let's talk about your opponent for a minute. Uh, your opponent is a 13 term congressman. Do I have that correct? Mike Doyle. He's going on 26 years. Yep. Wow. So 26 uh, years that, you know, two year terms, 13 terms is, is exactly right. And technically, Pennsylvania has been redistricted. So he was, he did 13 or 12 terms for the 14th district until it was redistricted, redistricted to the 18th. Is that correct as well? That's exactly right. And the beautiful thing there is that a lot of people in the 18th, they never voted for him. They don't know who this guy is. Uh, he, he is not their representative. They inherited him. And, uh, and the South Hills, the suburbs of the city, tend to be more conservative leaning than the city itself, which is where he's kind of skated through for the majority of his elitist insider career. Well, we have a real, real embodiment of what you've been preaching here. We have a decade's worth of um, sitting in a congressional seat up there in D.C., maybe not relating to the people, you know, those those congressmen like you spoke of that really get rooted there and have their best interests at heart, not the districts, you know, kind of that older fat cat politician mentality. And then we have you here, kind of the exact opposite. You know, you're young, you're vibrant, you're looking to make an impact in your community the best way you know how. And something I'd like to mention as well, that seat that he previously held, the 14th district, now has a Republican representative. Guy, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this guy's last name, Rushenthaler. Okay. Most people just call him Guy because it's way easier. But yeah, Guy Rushenthaler, that's correct. So yeah, what you've been speaking of, maybe it does resonate with people in Pennsylvania. And let's touch on something else with Mike Doyle as well. Pennsylvania, obviously a big energy industry, you know, as you spoke of the coal mines. And I believe they have a few nuclear plants up there uh, as well, if I'm correct. So a big energy uh, state, definitely. Now, something I see that Mike Doyle puts a big emphasis on is climate change, green new energy, and uh, probably supports the Green New Deal as well. Uh, where do you yes. fall on that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, so that's the big one, right? The, the last part of what you just said there, the Green New Deal, is really what makes him an outright enemy to people who want to defend their jobs here in the region. Uh, Mike Doyle. Uh, Bill Peduto, Tom Wolf. The, these men have made themselves antagonistic towards the working class of PA and specifically of Western PA. They have endorsed uh, Joe Biden, who says he wants to end shale and fracking, period. Not that he wants to continue to make it safer, which it has become increasingly massively safer in the last decade. Not that he wants to optimize it. He wants to end it. And a lot of the unions in Western PA, they live off of making parts for energy production, whether it's uh, oil, oil pipelines, shale, fracking, uh, many of these things are what their industry relies on, and it will be gutted by these guys who want to grandstand 
and, uh, and, and destroy their, essentially destroy their lives. I mean, destroy their jobs and destroy the way that they are paying the bills right now. So where I fall on that spectrum is really pretty simple. Climate change is happening. It's very, it's very easy to see. Um, and I think it makes conservatives look silly when some conservatives say climate change isn't happening. It's not, it is happening. And however, there's a big qualifier here. We also can track climate change back through thousands of years. And we also have estimates of climate change. Um, and what we see is that there's actually a very reliable repeating wave curve where, where you see that the climate of the earth heats and cools and heats and cools with, with great reliability and very, very consistently. Um, we are in a heating cycle right now. So then the question is, we are in a natural cycle. How much, if any of it, is our fault? How much have we contributed to post-industrial revolution? That's the question. Um, and that's what we disagree on. I, I, I've studied the science. The, the science really does not show that we've contributed very much. As a Christian, I believe we should care about our environment. I believe we're stewards of the earth that we've been given. So I don't want to kill the polar bears. I don't want to, you know, see those BP oil spills where there's like, you know, a, a pelican that's been dunked in a, an ocean full of oil. That doesn't make me <laughs> yeah, laugh sorry. and rub my hands, my capitalist hands yeah. together, you know? I say, how can we avoid that? Um, but, but then we also have to push back and say, okay, but how much of climate change is actually just politicized for power grabbing and for grandstanding politically? And I think the answer is a lot of it. it a lot of it is based on very weak pseudoscience. Um, and it ignores, most people don't talk about this fact that we know the earth naturally heats and cools through estimates and through actual recorded data. Uh, so, so that's where I come down on it. Well, that's terrific. I, I share pretty similar views on that as well. I'd have to agree that overall, you know, a lot of people don't take into account, like you said, the, the kind of data. They, t they look at data from the in Industrial Revolution to now, and a lot of people just don't realize how much that's really a blip on the radar. And if anybody wants to talk about climate change and making a big impact, the people we should be looking at are China and India. Two of the largest producers in the world, They've, they far outproduce the U.S. in um, unclean fossil fuels. You look at China's coal industry, India's coal industry, you know, that's a it's a big difference from the U.S. So, yeah, I think people can make claims about that and use it to further their own agendas, like you said, where in a place that's so energy centric like Pennsylvania. And I totally forgot about the fracking as well. I mean, that's a big industry in Pennsylvania as well. You know, that's that's a huge energy industry. I would I would find it hard uh, if I was a. You know, if I was a resident of Pennsylvania to support anybody who'd support any of those initiatives. Exactly. And the Green New Deal, you know, it's it's exactly what we are just both agreeing on, which is grandstanding. It's not a logical path forward. It turns a blind eye to the idea of saving lives through advancing technology, which is exactly what we've done in the past several decades. Um, it would gut our ability to advance technology. It would limit our ability to understand other nations because it would all but limit uh, air travel. Um, and air travel is what has brought the world together. And those are just a few things off the top of my head. And it would, of course, gut shale and, and energy independence for, for the United States. And the evidence of what you just said, that we are turning a blind eye to China and Russia and India and their abuse of the planet, um, is in the fact that someone like Greta Thunberg loves to speak out against the West, loves to speak out against um, free market America and any free markets that are still surviving and limping through in, in Europe. Uh, she, she loves to put a bullseye on, on their, their backs, but she is all but silent on China 
all but silent on Russia and India, none of which have anywhere near the responsible guidelines that the West operates by. I mean, there, there's no comparison. It's oh, it, yeah, it's it's really ridiculous, um, the amount of pollution that they cause solely. It completely yeah. dwarfs our, our, it's such a minuscule amount. It's the same thing I tell people, you know, when they talk about pollution in the sea or, you know, plastic straws or something like that. Like, yes, right. we say if we eliminate straws, we can do that, but we're 0.0001% of the problem. I mean, there's a, there's a wrong way and a right way to do things, but you have to look at things that are impactful, not just blind symbols. Let's uh let's move to a different topic. Uh, you are millennial, and uh one of the one of the topics uh, I see that you uh you have a stance on is social security. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because I I'm I believe we may share the same opinion on it. Just yeah. To- so the, the the problem is really really easy to outline, and it's that anyone with access to Google and a calculator and some eighth grade level math can tell you that social security, which you and I have paid into, I'm at I'm 27 years old, right? Uh, for over a decade at this point, social security will not be around when we retire. Uh, our our time, blood, sweat, and tears is going into a system that will not mathematically be there. Uh, I believe, actually, the the Department of State estimates uh, 2035, I want to say, is about when when it will basically start to trickle off and then is eventually be gone a few years after that. That's a problem. (laughs) That's a huge problem. Um, The the other problem is that Social Security has not been revamped and uh, has not been made to keep up with the times as a system. So we haven't taken into account the fact that when Social Security was implemented, the retirement age and the life expectancy were both considerably uh, younger than they are today. Uh, we, we haven't taken in, into account the, the changing economy and the changing workforce that we have. We haven't even tried to encourage people to, quite frankly, have more babies, trying to encourage American population growth. We've actually done the opposite. And, and we, as a result, we see a shrinking workforce. We see a de-incentivized workforce. And we see a workforce who now is waking up to see wait a second, we're getting screwed here. Uh, so the right thing to do, I think, is to start addressing all of those problems by changing the guidelines and qualifications for Social Security, changing it so that only people who actually need it will be qualified for it, um, whether that's through physical disability or through poverty or se- several other qualifiers, and then also making sure that the people who right now are retiring and who paid their years, who did their due diligence, that they are provided for. Because it's not fair, just because I'm a millennial doesn't mean I want to sweep the rug out from all the baby boomers. The baby boomers paid into that system just like we're paying in, so they deserve to be protected. We need to start modifying the system slowly over time and implementing these changes where the the retirement age is cranked up to match our life expectancy and our average working uh, retirement age. I couldn't agree on that more. Um, what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to Social Security, which I am not a fan of at all, is it's, you know, really a socialist New Deal era policy uh, yes. that just became so popular because it was actually applicable at the time to kind of make that happen. Now, we look at it now, it's a completely abused program and people rely yes. on it now. Right. But anyone who thinks that their check is what's being taken out for Social Security is getting put in a bank account with their name on it until they turn <laughs> 65 is a fool. 
And there, it's it's really a tough system to undo because these people that get Social Security go out and vote too, and they don't want anything. Yes. They don't want anything that would possibly inhibit them from from getting it. It's a really That's tough right. situation for the country to be in. If it was up to me, I'd phase it out con- completely. I I don't think it's a good system. I think it's a system that builds reliance as it has for quite a while. And I think it's only going to continue to until it collapses, you know, when the next generation comes through to rely on it. That's right. It was a terrible system to, to begin with. I, I think that just from like from a, a realist approach, I, I just don't think entire, entirely getting rid of it could happen. I could be wrong. And, and if someone came up with a good way of phasing it out and encouraging people to actually be more prosperous through the free market, which we would actually see and we did see prior to Social Security. I would support that. I, I, I just, uh, I, I think that working with what we can do is probably better than nothing at all. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's a terrible system. I mean, it, it was, it was terrible when it was implemented and it's only gotten worse because it hasn't been upkept. It's like someone, it's like a, a garbage car that somebody made and then no one ever did maintenance on it. And now it's, it's worse than it's ever been. So that's yeah, a, I, yeah, that's a perfect analogy for it. You but uh, that there's only a short time before it would run out of money. Would you, based off what you said about your policies in terms of slowly changing it over time, would that be enough to prevent any type of collapse? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have we'd have to look at the timeline and when we could actually start implementing big change. I, I do think that moving back the retirement age would probably start extending the timeline that we have to play with because then you would logically be taking less money from the system. So we might be able to extend our playing field a bit. Uh, that would right. be my, my guess, but I'm not positive of that. I haven't run those numbers. Well, let's talk and about moving the retirement age back in relations to your district because 16% of the population in your district is over the age of 65. Now, being how young you are, um, and I guess you could say untested or unproven, or just the fact that, you know, you're a millennial, um, do you think that dissuades that older generation of voters who may just be more comfortable? And let's be honest, you know, the older generation, the silver vote, they really get out there and vote. Do you think they'd be just more comfortable with someone whose policies they don't necessarily agree with, but they feel more comfortable with their age? No, I don't think so. So I, I think that the the age specifically actually plays heavily in my favor, more so than it has in the past. So I would say in the 90s, for a young outsider to try to break onto the scene was all but undoable. Uh, but this isn't the 90s anymore. We've got social media. We've got a lot of passion on the side of millennials who now make up the biggest voting block. And we've also got a lot of boomers and people older than boomers who are very betrayed in their in, in the way that they feel and who are very frustrated with these politicians who have pretended to represent them for a long time but really have not done what they should have and put forth the effort to accurately represent them uh, anymore so i've actually gotten some really good feedback from elderly actually the the main support from a financial standpoint is from elderly donors um and i think that if you talk to them about something like social security within the, the parameters that we just discussed, which is, look, you, you deserve this every bit as much as I do because you paid into it for years. It was promised to you. I might hate the system, but you paid into it for 50 years. So we can't just take it away from you. As long as you start with that as your, your, your kind of uh, your starting block, I think that it, it's a, a fairly easy conversation actually to have because many of them don't even like the system. It's just like they, they want their money, 
but they, that doesn't mean they like the system. You, you know, um, it, it's almost like some of these bailouts that we see going around where people got their, you know, whatever thousand dollar check from, from the government. Lots of people are like, I, I don't like these bailouts and I don't like the government, but this check is in my mailbox. So, so I'll go cash it. Like I'm going to take yeah. the money, you know, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily would vote for someone who's going to further those bailouts and, and things like that. So that, I think that's kind of a, a, a fair comparison. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I feel like with a lot of the population now, especially here recently, politics has become a lot more important and a lot more relevant. And maybe that's just due mostly to social media because we talk about us now and we talk about, you know, the older population. Well, they still all have they all have Facebook now. You know, they're all on Facebook and they may not be on Twitter and Instagram. But there are people seeing that stuff. So there's a lot. It's a lot easier for people to get their name out there. And it's a lot easier for people to have a different side to choose than, yeah, that they have been able to for the past uh, decade or so. It's it's really a big change. But you bring up stimulus checks. Um, let's talk. move on to a more current issue. Let's talk about the HEALS Act and the, uh, the HEROES Act. And tell me how you stand on those. So uh, the HEROES Act is the one that passed, correct? And then HEALS is being uh, proposed, or, or do I have those back, uh, backwards? Uh, I don't believe that either one has been passed yet. I believe the HEROES Act was passed in the House and the HEALS Act was passed in the Senate. Yeah, so I, I don't know the specifics of the HEALS Act. The HEROES Act, I'm a little bit more familiar with. I think it's been around longer, and, and you could fact check me on, on that. I, I believe the HEROES Act actually was initially brought to the forefront several months ago. It was, Uh, yes. Yes, and so uh, I'll say something about the act as a whole, which is that I think it's it's very sneaky and it's very very well-named for marketing purposes, but but very poorly structured structured as a policy. Um, And what I mean by that is that there's this, this bait and switch that people do in political marketing, where if you name something um, a universally accepted term. So the Heroes Act. Who doesn't who doesn't like heroes, right? Uh, soldiers, right? Uh, cops, or it used to be cops. Uh, EMTs, like these are heroes. We all love them. Um, and so you name something that, and then you put a bunch of what would politically be called pork. And I'm sure you guys know what this is, but for the listeners, pork in an act is something that is entirely unrelated to the purpose of that act. And we see this a lot with these 800-page bills, which literally the last stimulus bill that sent us all those checks. All that, that was, it was an 860-something page bill. So you, you better believe, you best believe that within that 800 pages, within that, that lengthy novel of a book, um, there was some pork, some things that had nothing to do with stimulating the economy, some things that had nothing to do with saving lives from COVID-19, some things that were just about burying in that 800 pages policy that you want to slide in and protect under an act named something like the HEROES Act. And then what happens with this quick marketing bait and switch is people say, well, look, the Republicans voted against the HEROES Act. Isn't that terrible? Do the Republicans even care about our heroes and our country? And it's this very slick way of ushering in something that has nothing to do with heroes has nothing to do with saving the economy, has nothing to do with saving lives. It's actually, as we saw several months ago, many of these policies had uh, secret abortion funding. They had things like emission guidelines for airlines. Tell me what emission guidelines for airlines has to do with COVID-19. Absolutely nothing. 
So they slide those into the act and then they push them forward. So I think it's very sneaky. It's very dishonest. And it leads me actually to, to one of the big things I would want to push for within the U.S. House and within the Senate, which is, number one, I think we need to limit the length of bills. I think that if you're trying to sell me on believing. Excellent. Could not, that, could not have said and, it better. Yeah, right. I mean, if, if we're supposed to believe that every member of Congress read that 800 something page document. You, you, you bet. No way. Nobody's read that document. The staffers who wrote it didn't read it. The staffers exactly. who worked for the people didn't read it. That Nobody's read any of these bills in their entirety. They just snuck in some sort of funding that they wanted. And that was it. As long as that's in the bill, they're they're fine with it. Yes. Yeah. So I, I hate that. I absolutely hate that these bills are so big. And um, and then number two would be, I think it should actually be illegal to have poor kitten in your bill. I think that if your bill is supposed to be for COVID relief, you have to be able to publicly exemplify how that policy is tied to COVID relief. Because if you're passing a bill on COVID relief, and I look in there and I see something about energy reform with, with our, our treaties within the, the Middle East or something like that, my question is, why are you lying to the American people? This is not about COVID relief. This is about you getting energy reform. So uh, those are two things that I think we, we absolutely need. And that kind of covers the HEALS and the HEROES Act. I, I would have to totally agree about limiting the size of the bills. Something we're looking at right now with the HEROES Act and the HEALS Act is, you know, the Democratic HEROES Act is um, running about $3 trillion dollars. The HEALS Act is about $1 trillion. Now, there's a million things that both sides don't agree on in between, but both sides do agree another round of $1,200 stimulus checks should be sent out. So that's another great example of if they agree on that, why can't it be a singular bill to push that through and have that done with and then examine the rest of the items? And I don't. I totally agree on the size of bills. Uh, I think it should be readable and understandable for everyday Americans. And that's definitely something we don't see right now. Uh, one of our other co-hosts, Zach's, we were speaking about the bill earlier, and he was saying you need an advanced law degree to read any of them, anyways. So I understand how important these are and what it means, but yeah, it's it definitely infuriates some people when pork's put in as well. Um, as far as the heroes and the heels act. Let's talk about one small aspect of it, and that is unemployment. Now, this is where both sides definitely uh, disagree. The Republicans yes. are looking at reducing it from $600 a week to $200. To yes. The yep. Democrats are still very strict on the $600 a week, which most people have come to view as a disincentive to return to work. Yeah, I, it, it is. <laughs> Look... I've got some really hardworking family members who I respect very greatly who lost their jobs from this. And in private conversations, they've said, Luke, I'm making better money now than I made when I was working sick, my, working my tail off with 60 hour weeks. So if hard workers are hit like that, what about the lazy among us? <laughs> like, because there are lazy among us. And there are also good hard workers who look at their bank account and they say, why on earth? would I go back to working 40, 50, 60 hour weeks and making less money than I'm making right now? And that's exactly what the Democrats want. That's what the radicals want. They want you reliant on them and they want you to get that hook in, in your mouth, just like they've done through welfare, through targeting minorities. They, it's not 
It's not helpful. It's not altruism. They actually want to hurt you by getting this hook in your mouth and then controlling you for the rest of your miserable life. <laughs> That's what they want. So, so of, uh, I think Munchen. actually what we should have done from the beginning is probably look at this unemployment and say, we are going to pay you based on what you were living on before getting unemployed, rather than just arbitrarily saying, hey, unemployment plus 600 for everybody for a couple months. To me, it's like, who comes up with this number and why? Uh, why like, how do you know that these people need this? For example, in my family, there are people now living off of more money than they had lived off of when they were working for money. And it's not by their fault, it's because they were fired and an unemployment said, hey, here's an extra $600. So if, as opposed to that, they had gone through a little extra legwork within the IRS and said, send us your pay stubs for the last six months, show us what you're living off of monthly, and we'll match it. I think that that would have been, I still don't love bailouts, but that would have been a much more reasonable structure than to just randomly say, 600 extra ought to do it for everybody and, and hand that out. Well, it's funny you mentioned that tactic on there. Um, on the Heels Act, that's actually the way it's structured partially. Uh, it would be $200 a week plus up to, or then it would be $500 per week to match up to 70% of lost wages. So nice. if your lost wages were set $500 with 70% per week, then that's what you'd receive. Now, it also includes a return to work bonus of $450 for people out there still looking to job. So maybe you should be writing the laws out there. It sounds like you've got it down. I'll tell you, a lot of it's just common sense, and, and it's, it's bipartisan common sense. And it's the stuff that we look at and we say, who makes this garbage policy? Like, who put this together? And then you find out it's a bunch of these losers in D.C. who got elected in the 80s who have been out of touch with the working class for decades on end. And some of these people who ask uh, absurd questions, like there's a famous Democratic congressman who asked whether or not Guam would tip over if more Marines were deployed on the island. That is an actual question <laughs> you can look up on YouTube. These are the people making your laws. He is still in power. He actually is one of the, the people who had the audacity to insult the intelligence of Bill Barr, uh, A.G. Bill Barr, when he had the hearing last week. Um, this was the same congressman who thought that an island would capsize based on the amount of people who were deployed on that island. These are people making our policy. It, it's out, it, it really is scary and outrageous. I couldn't agree more. Uh, let's, let's take it to a little more current, current events as well. Um, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really gain steam over the summer. Could you tell us a little bit how Pennsylvania has been affected? Um, what it looks like over there? PA is a good bit more mild than what I've seen around other parts of the country, uh, namely Oregon, Washington, Chicago, New York. Uh, PA is not like those those places. But there, there have still been protests. There were protests here that got violent. They were short-lived. But they did get violent uh, and destructive. Um, we, I went downtown and helped to clean the cleanup effort. We saw uh, shattered glass, uh, robbed stores, um, burning cars, uh, things like that happened here. Um, and this region is, as we kind of said in the intro, it's more of a centrist working class region, less radicalism here. And so we're not really feeling the heat as much as some regions are, but it's still relevant here. It, it's definitely still still present. Okay. And uh, what about your thoughts on the movement overall? 
Yeah, so the, the BLM movement, really easy. And it's a simple concept. I think that the idea that Black Lives Matter is absolutely true. It's absolutely necessary. Black lives do matter. Anytime you show me injustice against a black life, I'll stand with you on it. I think that the organization which took those words, BLM, Black Lives Matter, is absolutely terrible. They're corrupt. They're liars. They don't actually care about minority lives. Um, they're misnamed. They should not be called Black Lives Matter because they don't care about all black lives. Like the, the, the clash used to be between all lives matter and black lives matter. Now the clash is between, okay, do all black lives matter or did just black lives who can be race baited for political expediency matter? And the answer for BLM, the organization, is only black lives who can be race baited for, me, for political expediency matter. They don't care about the vast majority of black lives who are hurt in poverty, who are hurt through crime, who are hurt by uh, other minorities like Hispanics, fellow blacks, or even by other white citizens. They should be called black lives taken by white cops matter because that's all that they care about. And those are the vast, vast, vast minority of suffering that we see in minority communities is because of those topics. I, I'd have to agree with you. And um, another thing I'd like to touch on with the Black Lives Matter movement as well is, you know, cops killing people. I mean, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, just by accident or if it's, you know, with cause or whatever it may be, that will never be eliminated in right. any sense. So I, I agree with what a lot of uh, what a lot of the things are behind the movement as well as equality. Uh, things of that nature, but it's really taken a stance and become, I, I think, well, really solely it was because everybody was locked up for three months and then there was some right. spark, yeah. some reason to get out in the streets, why it gained so much steam. But I think it's, I'd have to agree with you, it's really taken on a life of its own that is not, is not a friend of um, black people. 100%. And I think that there are some good conversations that we can draw out of this with the people who actually care about their communities, and this is white, black, Hispanic, anyone who actually cares, we can have conversations about the fact that up until the 1960s, uh, it was legal to be racist, to, to segregate schools. We can talk about that. We can talk about how that's affected our communities and how we still need to heal those wounds. Um, I support that. I support the idea that, look, many of us were raised by parents who went to segregated schools. That impacts us, that changes us. I get that. Um, but the way to do it is not to target black communities with riots. It's not to encourage violence. It's not to, um, to hold down minority communities by making them reliant on the state and telling them that they can never find success unless the state helps them. Um, though that is not the path forward. Um, actually, uh, one of the big things that I'm a proponent of is restructuring law enforcement in the police uh, precincts so that police chiefs as a position are an elected position and not an appointed position. Because what we actually see right now is that some of the lack of transparency and accountability that happens, and I'm a big supporter of, of law enforcement. Look, no one hates a bad cop more than a good cop. I think that's absolutely true. But mm. when we do see abuse of power, the reason that it, it often happens is because um, there's not as much transparency as we'd like to see, and there's not as much of a relationship between the community and the cops being one and the same. Uh, so how can we fix that? Well, we can make this police chief who runs the department an elected position, just like the sheriff is. Um, because what we have right now 
are police chiefs, largely Democratic police chiefs, appointed by Democratic mayors in Democratic cities who feed into this system um, and who don't have to be accountable to anyone except for that mayor who appointed them. The people don't get a vote on it. The people don't get to decide whether or not the job is kept. They don't get to show their grievances um, other than street protests, which often become violent and are dangerous. So I think that's a problem. So the simple solution is we're a democratic system. Make this a democratically elected position. Um, and I think that would actually build a lot more relationship between the population and the law enforcement. I'd have to agree. I, I think that'd be a terrific idea. We have quite a few sheriff's departments in Texas, and uh, they're notoriously well-behaved and fantastic uh, contributors to the community. Yeah, right, because that sheriff, his deputies act on his behalf. And so if his deputies act up, that sheriff is less likely to get reelected. So he has a reason to care about how his deputies act and thus how the population views him. So it's it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, let's touch on something on a little more a uh, little bit of a lighter note uh, on your Twitter handle. I did see that the young wolf is on there. Is that or is it not a Game of Thrones reference? <laughs> it, it is. So I mean, I'll I'll say this. I am a big fan of Rob Stark. I, he was always. Honestly, probably my favorite character. I'd have to agree. Uh, gosh, it, it was a heartbreaker. One of the coolest characters in there. And um, and we had a, an article run on, on my candidacy and on what my team and I are doing that said, uh, in an age of aging elephants and rhinos, Luke Negron is a young wolf um, in politics. And I, I thought that was so cool because, look, I'm very much pro-term limits. I'm anti-establishment. I, I am a Republican but I believe that elitism is a problem that we see in both parties. I think the Democrats are worse with it, but I think that there are elitist sellout Republicans uh, up in, in Washington as well. Uh, so I, I am very much someone who embraces this idea of kind of being an energetic, uh, vicious in the sense of, of uh, gregarious and, and powerful and influential and not scared, bold, uh, young wolf. I, I, I love that. And uh, I think that's that's a nickname I will run with. I always loved Teddy Roosevelt's um, The Bull Moose. Um, oh, yeah, so, that's tough to beat. Yes, yeah. I mean, so I, I will, I'll take that all day long. I, I love the, the nature analogies. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, not to get off on a tangent, one of my favorite presidents. Uh, fun hey, fact. Me too. He was uh, he was shot while giving a speech running for his third term and continued with the speech. And uh, that that's where the nickname in his, in his muscle. His, yeah, his chest muscle. <laughs> that's where the uh, nickname came from. Yes. Yeah. I actually didn't know that's where the name came from, or maybe I did and I forgot. But yeah, it's that's amazing. I love it. All right, Matt. Did you have any questions? It was. Uh, it's. It's becoming more well known that George Floyd had some problems with fentanyl when he was under arrest, and I'm curious if you have any opinions on how to deal with this crisis of drug use in America, which I think is really underrepresented in the media. Yes. Yeah, I do. So actually, this is two, two things that are very important to me. One is that I think we need to address the war on drugs through new eyes. What we kind of see in, in the old sense is, hey, we're going to have this war on drugs. No one really knows what that means, but like, but cool, we're going to do it. And it's yeah. this undefined idea. And then it's very easy for the people on the streets, for us, the working class who walk down streets that have drug addicts on the corners to say like, what is this war on drugs doing? It's not, it's wasting our tax dollars. It's funded by me 
and it's doing nothing. I don't feel safer. So we need to view it through new eyes and redefine it and say how the war on drugs as an idea, I think is a good thing, but in its execution, it's been very poor. Um, so let's redefine it. Let's bring some transparency to the situation and let's maybe even apply uh, or, or direct elected officials to run this in a way that demands transparency because they're elected and they have to show their progress um, in something like a, a congressional uh, team that, that, that is that is tasked with it. So that's number one. Number two is I'm a big uh, supporter of sentencing reform for drug for nonviolent drug offenders. And what we see right now happening with uh, prison recidivism is a lot of nonviolent drug offenders will go to prison and then they'll serve their, their sentence, whether it's six months, two years. They get negatively influenced by their surroundings in prison. They go out. They can't get a job because now they're branded as a convict. And so then the only thing for them to do realistically is to go back to a life of crime and or drugs. I think that's a big problem. That means that then they would live off of the taxpayer dollar. They lose their freedom and we lose an otherwise productive member of society. So a way to bypass that is actually we've seen a lot of promising uh, results from drug reform school. So sending these nonviolent and I always emphasize not the violent offenders, nonviolent offenders Good to thing drug that. reform school <laughs> instead of prison has has very promising long term effects where these people then are not negatively influenced while they're in their restricted area. They're actually positively influenced in reform school. And then they have a much higher likelihood of coming back to society, contributing as a contributing member of society, and also not spreading the, this epidemic that we do see now reaching down to, I believe the age, the average age of exposure to drugs is something like seventh or eighth grade now. It's not even in, in high yeah, school. Anymore. Yeah. It's in middle school. So yeah, so those are some steps we could take. Well, that's a that's a point of view I haven't heard before. Yeah, I haven't either. But it, it sounds like sounds like a fantastic idea. I I would fully support that. Let's shift topics a little bit to a personal favorite of mine. It happens to be Hong Kong. So uh, for whatever reason, I I love those protesters over there. I guess just because they're you know so patriotic on the verge of you know being destroyed by the CCP. So let's just go over that a little bit. You know we came from an in America, we fought wars over it, uh, you know, to make the world safe for democracy. So I know everybody wants to turn a blind eye now with COVID, uh, but do you think there's anything that America can be doing to assist Hong Kong in that, in that sense? Well, yes. I mean, the short answer is, of course, of course, there's something we could be doing. We'd have to, we'd have to tease it out and, and, and be cautious in the way we proceed. But if you're going to ask me if I would rather turn a blind eye to people who love freedom, who are clearly our allies, or so, so either turn a blind eye to them or help them, my answer is help them. Do what, do what is necessary to help them. Uh, whether that means helping to arm them. Look, we, we've done this in the past. Like, like, that sounds extreme, but we did this in South America. Yes, that's what I was going to bring up. Are you encouraging a, a CIA uh, drop program for Hong Kong? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's not unheard of, and these are people who want what we want. Um, now, the 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 pushback would be okay, but aren't you undercutting China and kind of playing with fire? To which I would say, excuse me, but screw China. I don't care if we're undercutting them. They have sent us so like we we've literally got infected seeds being mailed to Americans from China. We've got yeah, what's um, with that? 
got COVID-19, which they intentionally lied to the world about. Um, they have been in economic warfare with us. It has been a cold war between us and China for the last decade or more. Um, so if we're going to arm their protesters and allow them to pursue their freedom without us outright declaring war on them, I love it. I say throw it in their faces. Another thing that I think we should throw in the face of the evil Chinese leadership, and I always want to distinguish between Chinese leadership and the people. The people are largely innocent. The mm -hmm. people want freedom. The leadership is evil. Uh, they will kill their people. They will weld their people inside of their houses with COVID-19 and leave them to starve or die from medical causes. Um, so another thing we can throw in their face, and I, I would love to talk to Donald Trump about this, is I want to total up the loss to our economy and the loss from our bailouts that came as a result of COVID-19. And I want us to send that to China and say, any debt that we have to you is this is being subtracted from it. And I've told it it would actually be more. So we all of our debt to China would be canceled. So basically, we should tell China, we are never paying you that money back because your incompetence and or nefarious lies cost us this money. So I think that's a, a great way to, to combat them. And then back to the this, the the uh, the freedom fighters in Hong Kong. I don't I haven't been following the story extremely closely, um, but I, I support them. I, I've heard them speaking out in multiple interviews about how they love and want to be like America. And that literally it to use a millennial term, it gets me in my feels. I mean, it makes me emotional because you see these people there just waving American flags, just wanting freedom of speech, just the, the right to assemble without being carted off to to some, you know, dark box car, as we see happening now with the, the Muslims who China is is kidnapping. Yep. Um, I mean, this is their reality. So I support them. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that's that's a great mentality to look at. As far as the debt with China, um, you know, some of those things were thrown around by senators and representatives as well. But then we get in the situation where we need to borrow money next time and there might not be a next time. So I, there's a very complicated way to the Chinese issue with debt and money is so complicated. I don't think anybody understands it anymore, but it's, it's definitely it's difficult to deal with. But. I guess the, the easiest way forward there would be once we do that, balance our own stinking budget and stop borrowing money, even if it means slimming down. Right. But yeah, uh, that's kind of it. That's that's a two step program. And I think that's uh, two steps too many for, for many congressional reps to follow through on. <laughs> I'd have to agree. And Donald Trump has done a lot in the wings of uh, slimming down as well. Maybe not on military budget, uh, but you see, you know, trying to get away from organizations where we're taking advantage of like the UN and uh, other positions yes. where we're really just, yeah, we're, we're the front man. We'll foot the bill for, for all of it. So right. I'd, I'd have yeah. to agree. NATO, the WHO, I mean, three huge organizations. Yeah. Don't get me started on the WHO. I'm WHO is infuriating. I'm very, very happy with Donald Trump's position on that and with America's position on it now. So that's, and I don't, yes. I don't know what other presidents would have pulled out of that, at least in the last decade or two decades, who just said, you know, that this much, no Republican would have had the guts to no, certainly not Romney, not Bush, not McCain. They would not have had the, the, the guts to do that. Yeah, it's, it's tough for people to say, you know, this is wrong for America. There's no reason we should be in this position and fix it.
for whatever reason, everybody wants their yes. cut of it. But uh, Matt, did you have any more questions? No, that's all my questions. Okay, uh, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and start wrapping up. Luke, why don't you uh, tell all the potential voters out there one more time? Tell us where you, who you are, what you're running for, what are your biggest issues you stand on, and why people should vote for you. All right, so I am Luke Edison Negron, the young wolf uh, of politics. You can check out more about me at negron2020.com, N-E-G-R-O-N 2020.com. All social media is linked there, Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, as well as a, a evolving merch line through Amazon.com. And uh, you can also check out some of my policies there. I post them on the website because I want people to know that I am not being a stereotypical politician and playing to the room. I will put my policies out there publicly so that you know who I am and you can decide whether or not you agree. Um, that That is really one of the, then I guess the, the follow-up to your question was, what are some of the most important things that I stand on? One of them is exactly that, transparency in politics. It's the reason I have my policies up there. It's the reason I'm outspoken. It's the reason that I will have a conversation with anybody, anytime, whether or not I disagree with them. Because I think that politicians, need, especially local elected officials, mayors, governors, state reps, and U.S. House reps, these local leaders need to be in touch with their people. They're supposed to be your neighbors who know what you're going through and who then are able to represent you on a national level. We've really drifted far away from that, as I said in the beginning, with the Bushes, the Clintons, and then in a smaller sense, these people in the Congress, uh, in the U.S. Congress, like Mike Doyle, like my opponent, who have been in power for almost 30 years, uh, who are career elitists making 170 k annually off of the back of taxpayer dollars in my district, which has an average income of about 45 k annually. That means that this career elitist for 26 years has been making more than triple what everybody else makes. That's insane to me. Um, and that's why that's why I want to do what I'm doing, because I believe in term limits. That's one of the first policies I want to either pen myself or support if there is a realistic policy for term limits that I could come on board as a supporter of. I will do that in my first year in Congress. That's a public pledge that I've given to the people of the United States because I'm anti-career elitist. I, I, I don't think there's any reason for someone to be a, a Washington insider for decades on end. Uh, so I support term limits. I am anti-elitist and I am pro-citizen leadership. I am pro-neighbor um, leadership, especially for these local offices that we see around the country that have major need. So that's who I am. Negron2020.com and uh, and always feel free to reach out. I love, I mean, that's how we met, right? On Twitter, yeah, reach out to me and, and if you want to talk, we'll talk. Luke Negron, everybody. Uh, Luke, I want to thank you again for coming on. Uh, excellent conversation. Uh, I agree with all your positions and uh, I'd be happy to have one of your signs in my front yard. Let's, uh, let's go uh, ahead and wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Luke, again. Uh, this has been a special edition of the Credentials Buffering Podcast. And if you live in Pennsylvania's 18th district, make sure you get out and vote.